This is The Guardian. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Grace Dent. And I'm back. Friends, it's time for your fourth helping of comfort eating from The Guardian. Join me with more celebrity guests like Don O'Porter, Graham Norton and Mallory Blackman as we throw the fridge doors wide open on the comfort foods that have seen them through. You'll notice I'm talking a lot. That's because I'm, I'm hoping somewhere along the way I don't have to eat it. <laughs> oh, the, the level of devilment in your face. Comfort Eating returns on the 18th of October with new episodes released every Tuesday. Comfort Eating with me, Grace Dent, is supported by Ocado. When Donald Trump was elected in 2016, a lot of the analysis pointed a finger at social media, suggesting that below the radar of TV and the newspapers, the likes of Facebook, Twitter and others had enabled the spread of information that was misleading or outright false. The issue surfaced again in 2020, with the tech giants vowing to do better. So where are we now in the midterm election cycle of 2022, with election day just two and a half weeks away? After all, we've known of the risks of social media for years. If we can't discriminate between serious arguments and propaganda, then we have problems. I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist for The Guardian, and this week I'm looking at how misinformation could affect the outcome in November and who should be doing more to help stem the erosion of voter confidence in American democracy. This is Politics Weekly America. Over the last year or so, a number of publications have started really investing in reporting on mis- and disinformation. This is Anya van Wagtendonk of the online news site Grid News. She started there at the beginning of 2022, covering what is a pretty new beat in newsrooms across the country. She's a misinformation reporter. Especially, I think, with the war in Ukraine, there was a moment sort of in the spring where it seemed like everybody was suddenly turning into a misinformation reporter. And I think that we are really seeing, you know, a focus not just on the misinformation itself, but wanting to really report on the kind of meta practice of how misinformation spreads, um, who is funding it, and of course, you know, how to be fighting it. So it's a new beat for a lot of news organisations, but as a phenomenon, it's not new. 
Correct. And in, in fact, this is sort of an interesting conversation within misinformation studies is kind of how do we define this term? How does it distinguish from let's say, political spin, for example, or advertising, right? There are many ways that information um, has been manipulated or shared in sort of partial ways. And so it's not a new phenomenon. It's certainly not new in our politics. What is new is kind of the speed and scale at which it can spread. And that's, of course, thanks to technology. But that doesn't mean that it is a brand new problem invented by technology. So let's define our terms then, because as you say, that lots of different terms are used. You can hear people talk about misinformation, disinformation, as if they are interchangeable. And then, of course, the usual stuff of politics, where, of course, people put a spin on the facts in order to favour themselves or their candidate. So walk us through that lexicon and how you distinguish misinformation from disinformation and both from political spin. Misinformation is just information that flies in the face of some level of universal consensus. So to pick an obvious example, in the realm of science, there is a scientific consensus about the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccines. There is you know, more nuance and complication to what efficacy looks like, but the overarching fact is that it is better to be vaccinated against COVID-19 than not to be. Sure. And so information that says that the vaccine makes you more susceptible to getting COVID-19 or, of course, you know, plants microchips in your body, any of those kind of more conspiratorial ideas, that would be misinformation. Disinformation is the purposeful spreading of information that flies against universal consensus. Um, And so that might be because a person profits or gains power um, or repute. And so there is a difference between, let's say, Alex Jones, who profiteers off of conspiracy theories, and people who listen to him, believe him, and perhaps share a Facebook post or tell a friend about something that they've learned from him. And what about political spin? Because people, when the the terms post-truth and fake news entered the conversational bloodstream. You're saying it's a falsehood and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point... A lot of people say, well, hang on, you're talking about this as if this is new. Politicians have always lied. Why are you calling it now this fancy name, post-truth? In a way, there's a similar question that could be asked about the leap from calling something the usual run-of-the-mill, rough-and-tumble political spin and branding it, let's go to the hardcore one, disinformation. What's the difference? People, depending on their political philosophies, are always going to disagree about how to present certain information, whether because of a difference in value or just because of alignment with a particular party. So to pick an example from here in the States, and perhaps this is true in the UK as well, where inflation is quite high. We have one political party, the Democrats, saying it's actually not that high and we are fixing it and look at all the ways that things are improving. And then the Republican Party, which is hammering that message very intensively leading up to the midterms, that the Democrats have caused this level of inflation and that it's very bad and it's you know affecting you at the pump, it's affecting you at the grocery store. That is an age-old political difference. Where misinformation or disinformation might come in is saying a particular person, individual or group is pulling strings to make that happen. 
I, I wrote a story and a woman that I interviewed put it really beautifully, I think, when she said it's kind of the gray area between truth and spin where misinformation flourishes. And so as that gray area, I think, expands, particularly in the face of political polarization, it really allows more nefarious takes on classic political differences to take hold and take root. That's very helpful and clear. Let's get right into the present day then. We know about some of the claims of misinformation and and outright disinformation that marred 2016 uh, and the 2020 election fought against the backdrop of the COVID pandemic. Now we go into these midterms. They are a matter of weeks away. What kind of, and use whichever category is relevant, but what kind of misinformation or disinformation, that, that kind of active knowing spreading of falsehoods, what have you seen coming across your desk and your screen for these 2022 midterm elections? I think the overarching or uniting thread of misinformation, or I should say actually disinformation that we're seeing, is what we call the big lie. So this idea that Donald Trump actually won the 2020 election. And did I predict this, Newt? Did I say this? I've been saying this from the day I heard they were going to send out tens of millions of ballots. I said exactly because either they were going to win or if they didn't win, they'll take us to court. We have found at GRID a significant number of candidates who are running either on that explicitly as a platform or who have made clear that they don't believe that the 2020 election um, was fair and honest. And that is motivating races up and down the ballot across the country. We're going to see a little of that playing out in 2022 in terms of how successful those types of candidates are, we will really be seeing, if they are successful, um, the ramifications of having people who don't trust the process of American democracy administering American democracy in 2024. And so that is what I'm paying sort of most attention to. And then, you know, not to be too pessimistic, but the flip side of that is that most of those candidates don't win. They've still been spreading this idea that our system of democracy is not to be trusted. And so even losing at the ballot, to me, does not signal sort of a victory for truth, because it has still been this steady drumbeat that our voting system cannot be trusted. The people, you know, the civil servants, low-level civil servants who administer our elections cannot be trusted. At best, you know, that plays into a decline in participation in our democracy. At worst, that leads to outright violence. On that, I mean, and we've talked about this phenomenon on the podcast before, very specifically, the idea that you'll have election deniers administering future elections and what kind of threat that poses. Which basket do you put this in? I mean, whether it's misinformation, as it were, accidentally passing on things which are not right, or disinformation. Do you believe that some of the Republican candidates for office who deny that Joe Biden was legitimately elected, they say the election was stolen from him, do they know that's false and they're spreading it for their own purposes? Or do you, in which case it's disinformation, active, intentional, knowing disinformation? Or has it got to that point where they believe it? Again, I think there's a little bit of a difference between people who are able to achieve power through spreading these lies and voters. Many of us, most of us, I would say, sort of find information that fits um, a previously decided upon identity category. So, you know, when it comes to, for example, election denying, there is an identity formation that has occurred around this idea of 
not simply necessarily being a Trump supporter, although of course that plays into it, but also this idea of being a critical thinker, right? Of being somebody who does their own research. But there happens to be sort of this whole industry that allows people who want to do their own research, who want to really understand what's going on, who perhaps have legitimate reasons for distrusting um, certain institutions, political institutions, health institutions, scientific institutions. There is infrastructure in place that can lead them down, again, at best misinforming rabbit holes and kind of at worst extremist rabbit holes. So all of that is sort of just to point to this, how messy it can get um, when we talk about the role that misinformation and disinformation plays in affecting voter choices, for example, that there is so much more going on than people sort of reading facts that aren't true and acting accordingly. It seems to me that what you're describing is actually quite a big shift, because when we were talking about disinformation or misinformation in the past, we often were talking about those wilder shores of the internet, as far as the dark web even, but also on Facebook in groups that were somehow below the surface. It seems to me that the election denial piece is a very new form of mis- or disinformation because it's utterly mainstream because of Donald Trump and because of all the Republicans you've been mentioning. You don't have to go to some obscure Facebook group or you know, deep into the guts of Twitter to find it. It's right there on cable news every night in the form of Fox News. And it's really quite mainstream, in quotes, credible people, candidates for you know high office who are voicing it. Is that, do you recognise that as a shift in the kind of work you're doing in monitoring mis- and disinformation? I think that's exactly right. There is really kind of a point of no return where promoting this idea, um, again, that an American election was so easily stolen for kind of short-term gains, short-term political advantage, to my mind, can only have long-term damaging effects on the extent to which people trust voting as a process. I am not a political strategist, but it does not strike me as long-term useful, even for those who are currently experiencing the benefits of turning out people, you know, based on rage over a stolen election. Of course, it was not stolen. Then hoping that those people will continue to turn out to vote, period. Um, We saw a little bit of this actually in Georgia in 2020. um, The Georgia elections went to a runoff after the presidential race had been called. The Republican Party feeling confident going in that they would likely win those races. And it turns out that the two Democratic candidates actually outperformed Joe Biden among key Democratic constituencies, among African-Americans, among young voters there heard for several weeks, this election was stolen, this election was stolen, your votes don't matter. And so Republicans did not turn out to vote as significantly. And Georgia flipped to Democrat. And I have to think that the idea that Republicans were being told that their votes didn't matter played no small part sort of in in making many of them sit at home. Um, And I can't imagine that in the long term, it is helpful to tell your supporters that voting doesn't matter. And also, please come out and vote for me. Yeah, it is a kind of contradiction. But it is amazing because I think when we first heard these terms, 
we did associate it with, you know, foreign bots. Russian bots was the accusation in the 2016 election. Or it was these trolls hanging out in these kind of dark corners, 4chan, 8chan, etc. But now it's a former president of the United States and, you know, the candidate for uh, governor of Pennsylvania and so on, who are, for example, engaged in election denial. To tell us about that context, though, of how of, of how this did go mainstream in 2020, obviously the jumping off point was the election in November of that year. But to what extent did the pandemic play a role in altering people's views of information and indeed the proliferation of mis or disinformation? Aspects of pandemic mitigation response played into increased polarization here in the States. This broadening mistrust of institutions, like I say, the medical institutions that were, and the scientific institutions that were responding to the pandemic um, in a way that strengthened this idea of, if I am a Republican, then I mistrust, let's say the CDC, I mistrust these various institutions. And so it kind of like leads to this broader um, affinity with being a person who does not trust what mainstream institutions tell you. The CDC being, of course, the Centers for Disease Control, who were the main agency for fighting the pandemic. Thank you. Yes, exactly. Um, and so, you know, people, there was a, a growth in um, sort of conspiratorial community in general. You know, QAnon really kind of took off during this time. People were home and alone and bored and I think, angry and upset. It was not a great time for anybody. And it really kind of um, helped shift some people, I think, in favor of a politics that does not allow sort of these agencies, for example, to have control over you. And so I think it really helped kind of propel people towards more conspiratorial thinking um, in general, as well as, again, a, a politics of conspiracism. People voted for Trump who would not necessarily have been enthusiastic supporters of the Republican Party, but they were enthusiastic supporters of Donald Trump. And so when he starts saying that this has happened, you listen, you turn out. And, you know, what this led to here, of course, is the storming of the Capitol on January 6th, which was quite unprecedented. And I think came directly from, again, this drumbeat of your vote has been stolen from you. I mean, what you're describing there is is this link between the misinformation phenomenon, disinformation phenomenon, and the polarization of America. And I just want to ask you about two ways that might manifest itself. Let's start with one first of all, which is this notion that actually people are polarized in America because they are drinking from two different information streams and maybe more than two but they're, they're in separate information universes and the uh, and, and so in one world the sort of fox news trump world you believe a certain set of facts including even about you know whether you should wear a mask or not and then in another world which might be you know the new york times and msnbc you believe another whole set of facts and so americans are polarized even about what they know about the world I'm wondering about even our conversation. When you and I are now talking about certain categories of misinformation, disinformation, there will be Americans who might hear this conversation and just think, well, they would say that because they're in their information bubble and they think CNN or you know the BBC is fine and we all know that it's only Fox News that is telling the truth. I mean, if we got to this point where the mainstream media are 
themselves actually deemed to be on one side or the other of a partisan argument rather than a source of reliable information versus misinformation on the other hand. There is really this kind of crisis of trust in, as I mentioned, all manner of institutions, but absolutely the media is one of them. And the fake news refused to call it, right? You are fake news. There are people in your profession that write fake news. It's called fake news. In my opinion, it's really been the decline of local news that causes people to feel that media does not reflect them because they don't see reporters in their community. They don't see news that reflects their local concerns. Um, and so they turn to these national outlets that then can reflect back to them what they want to see. So sort of a narrative building rather than really kind of having news and information that directly affects their lives. But I don't know how we regain people's trusts if news is always coming out of New York, D.C. and L.A. and not really reflecting what people are seeing in their own backyards in the rest of the many thousands of miles between those places. Yes, I mean, fa fascinating you should bring us onto, onto local news that way. Uh, but you're quite right. I mean, there would be people who would think in a way that what CNN do or what you do on Grid or what I do on The Guardian, they might want to say that's the misinformation. We're spreading misinformation by claiming that Joe Biden won the election. You know, there would be people who will think even these terms themselves are sort of up for grabs uh, uh, in a way. But your mention of local news prompts me to ask you about this. A study that was done in May 2021 by scholars at the Brookings Institution, they were looking at this thing about polarisation, and they said something quite surprising, that the key concern, they wrote, is not the social media platforms and the features that allow the rapid sharing of all manner of information and misinformation. The real concern is an extraordinarily polarised American society, a state of affairs that has worsened for decades prior to the emergence of Facebook, Twitter and YouTube and so on. This is really interesting because it suggests that the, the usual way we've thought about misinformation, which is, oh yeah, this is a problem of the Facebook era, actually, according to those Brookings scholars, is predates that. And that might include, I suppose, as a possible culprit, the thing you identify, which is the decline of local news. But, but, but do you see something in that, that there's other factors that predate, you know, Twitter and Facebook that made this a big problem? Absolutely. I think, you know, when we talk about kind of the relationship between the information that we take in and kind of the more emotional or personal ways that we move through the world, I think that's really where this polarization comes into play. So, you know, I talked about inflation earlier as sort of a an area where we can have a philosophical debate, where voters can philosophically disagree. That becomes a completely different conversation when it gets framed in terms of you want my family to starve and, you know, that it be takes on this kind of very personal lens. And so it's not just about the information, the facts of a particular policy, but it becomes highly personal. And I think so many of these issues are now getting framed in terms not just of informational difference or factual difference, but really sort of matters of life and death for you and your family and your community. And so, of course, you're going to respond in a completely different way. Again, I think that's part of what led to January 6th. Um, there are elements of the QAnon conspiracy theory as outlandish as it is that if you kind of boil them down, I think 
appeal to people who think that they are protecting children. And that is a completely different approach to politics, again, than sort of reading something in the newspaper and checking a box in response. Now, even with these deeper underlying causes of misinformation due to these big changes in society, the greater polarisation of American society, obviously the big tech platforms do play a role, partly just because they make it easier to spread all information, including false information. Anya, from the reporting you've done, what's been the response from the big tech companies like Meta, like Twitter, like TikTok, when they've been challenged on what they could be doing to help stop the spread of fake news and miss and dis information? Most of the major tech platforms have some kind of prominent response to mis- and disinformation and especially electoral misinformation available and have said that they are kind of ramping up their efforts going into 2022. Critics would say sort of that they are often a step behind or that those resources don't match the scale of the problem. But it is really notable to me kind of the difference between the resources that they have available this year compared to in the buildup to 2020. So I know, for example, that um, TikTok and Facebook are um, putting resources towards like 60 to 70 different non-English languages towards addressing misinformation in non-English languages. Um, I have no idea the scale of those operations. Um, I don't know how many people they have working on those, whether it's like one per language in a way that we have thousands working in English. And so there are, are ways that there is really this kind of lack of transparency that makes it difficult to kind of assess the efficacy of these efforts. People who do this work have been begging the platforms for years um, to make their data public so that these types of approaches can be studied and understood in terms of how effective they are. And of course, I think it, it probably behooves the platforms not to be so transparent. People have also argued that the government, politicians need to be more involved, if only just so that they can somehow pressure the big tech companies to do more. And one of the criticisms pointed at them is that they just don't understand or take the time to understand what's happening in the online world, that that ignorance, in a way, of politicians makes it harder for them to know how to focus on solving this problem that, you know, people say they just don't get it, how these platforms, how these new, relatively new mediums work. That's certainly true. Um, we see that in, in hearings here on the Hill. Whenever the CEOs of the tech platforms get brought before Congress, it's a little embarrassing. A number of different Is Twitter the same as what you do? It overlaps with a portion of what we do. You don't think you have a monopoly? But I think, you know, more than that, there is also not a great deal of political motivation for these lawmakers, even to do the work of trying to understand the tech platforms, much less trying to moderate. Because, of course, many of them benefit from um, a relatively unregulated flow of misinformation and disinformation. And once we get into a, a world in which only some people take it seriously and some people see it as targeting them or targeting their party, then we are kind of even farther away from being able to address this as an issue once people see misinformation as um, a cudgel that is used to attack them rather than sort of a problem that affects every person trying to be a responsible voter or responsible consumer of information. 
Yeah, and yet, as you say, the stakes couldn't be higher because if people think that the well is poisoned with misinformation, they might well turn away from the whole business of voting at all if they think the election system is rigged. And as we saw perhaps on January 6th, take the law into their own hands. So a lot is at stake here. It's a dangerous business. Anya, we always like to ask our guests on the podcast a what else question, something completely different. Uh, As you and I speak, this has been a week of big debates in a lot of the uh, midterm battles uh, that will be decided next month. Some big ones in the Senate race in Ohio, where J.D. Vance for the Republicans uh, did battle against Tim Ryan for the Democrats. You were calling Trump America's Hitler. Then you kissed his ass. It's not true. It is true. And then you kissed his ass, and then he endorsed you. We've also had Herschel Walker, plagued by scandal in Georgia, pull out a police badge, which the moderator told him to put away as a prop, which are banned in these TV debates. Mr. Walker, you are very well aware of the rules tonight. Yes. And you have a prop. That is not allowed, sir. I ask you to put that prop away. Which was quite an odd moment. What have you made of the TV debates that have been played out this uh, in the last few days? And how, from what you're seeing, how are people responding to them online and on the various platforms where people talk about these things? It'll be curious to see whether those types of, let's call them old-fashioned approaches to how candidates interact with one another are going to be effective in this age where it is so easy to kind of reach your voters, first of all, your enthusiastic base, and then second of all, your kind of swing voters through these more direct means. And and so it'll be really interesting to see whether those debates end up as, you know, sort of actually informing prospective voters or undecided voters, or whether what they actually turn into, and I think we do see this, they become content mining operations for the different candidates. And so they allow a candidate to get a soundbite in or to get a little viral moment in and then turn that into content to then feed to their supporters. And if that's the case, if that is kind of where the good old fashioned political debate is headed, I don't know. Again, I don't know what the solution is there, but I think that's something to be really aware of. To what extent we give candidates opportunities to kind of create entertaining content when what they should be doing is speaking to their policies and what they would actually give to voters. Anya Van Wagtendonk, misinformation reporter for Grid News. Thanks so much for joining me on Politics Weekly America. Thanks so much for having me. And that is all from me for this week. A big thanks to Nick Nguyen, Evelyn Perez-Verdia and Laura Zommer, for their help with this episode. Look out as well for The Guardian's new video series, Anywhere But Washington, where my colleague Oliver Lochland has travelled to several states, exploring what America's most overlooked peoples and places reveal about a nation divided. In the first episode, he went to Indiana, the first American state to pass a new abortion ban into law following this year's overturning of Roe versus Wade. He talks to people there about how the issue will affect how they are going to vote in November. There will be a link to it on the episode description for today's show. Of course, I too am about to embark on my own road trip in just over a week's time, and I'll be starting in Georgia, where voting rights are seemingly on the ballot and Republicans try to claw back power after losing both Senate races in Georgia 
not even two years ago. Make sure to follow our special midterms coverage from Wednesday, November the 2nd. And if you want something completely different, The Guardian's restaurant critic Grace Dent is back with the fourth season of her brilliant podcast, Comfort Eating. She's joined by celebrity guests including Graham Norton, Mallory Blackman and Dawn O'Porter as she throws the cupboard doors open and talks life through food. Search for Comfort Eating wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens, executive producer Maz Ebtahaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.